Hello, and welcome to the latest in the Walkley Foundation's ongoing podcast series, which brings you the best journalistic talent from Australia and around the world. In November 2013, the Public Knowledge Forum brought together leading thinkers on technology, politics and the press from Australia and the United States. The event at the Sydney Opera House explored pressing questions about the future of journalism and its impact on governance and public policy. In conjunction with the United States Study Centre and Sky News Australia's APAC, the Walkley Foundation is delighted to present this series of six podcasts examining the state of journalism and asking where to next. This episode, titled Engaged Audiences, features Editor-in-Chief of 9MSN, Hal Crawford, American media and politics scholar, Nicole Hemmer, Jonathan Rorsch from the Brookings Institution, and The Atlantic and New York Times columnist and host of The Drum on ABC TV, Julia Baird. I'm going to call up, first of all, Hal Crawford. He is the publisher on the panel. He's had a very interesting background career as a journalist because he began at the West, West Australian magazine, uh, at the newspaper, sorry, doing the police rounds that every young cub reporter should do. Ended up in the Netherlands working in radio. Came back to um, teach journalism at La Trobe University in Melbourne. And now he's overseeing the nine MSM content division. So it's 80 content sites across the web portal, Bing and MSM products. Now, the, and the three largest sites there are Nine News, The Fix, which is entertainment and the wild, wide world of sports. So we have someone here who is commercially successful with engaged audiences. Um, Nicole Hemmer is a visiting associate professor. She's our historian on the panel at the University of Miami. And she's a visiting scholar at the United States Studies Centre as well. She's done a lot of work on American media and politics, and in particular, the right-wing media in the US, their influence and how it shaped modern conservatism in America today. Her first book was Messengers of the Right, Media and the Modern Conservative Movement. And she's also the author of The Dealers and the Darling, Conservative Media and the Candidacy of Barry Goldwater, which is a fascinating read. Jonathan Rauch is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institute in Washington and the author of six books and many, many articles, of which I, um, my favourite of all time is an article he wrote in 2003 on caring for your introvert, which I think might have been overtaken by Anne-Marie Slaughter's article last year on whether women can have it all, but before that was brought more traffic to the Atlantic website than any other any other article ever written for them, which I says, think says something extraordinary about introverts and online. Um, <laughs> and it's also very, very funny. If you have time, I would really recommend looking that up. He's a contributing editor of National Journal and The Atlantic, um, which is doing very, very interesting work online. And in 2005, he got the Golden Apple, the National Magazine Award for a series of columns that he, he wrote. So we're thrilled to have all of them here with us this afternoon to be talking about the, 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 uh, the engaged audience. The way we're going to structure this is we will have uh, each, of the, each of the speakers will just throw out some of their initial thoughts. We're going to have a discussion and at the end we'll have 10 minutes for questions and I think there'll be bells to remind us of such things. So the impact of social media on journalism impacts the way we talk about news, we think about news, we produce news, we understand news. And I'm, I'm going to ask um, Jonathan, first of all, to kick off with answering the question from your own experience about whether social media has delivered the revolution that it promised it would. 
No, next question. <laughs> uh, <laughs> thank you, Julia. You know, I looked at my uh, notes for the, on the agenda and it said enraged audiences. I looked again and realized it was engaged audiences, but it might, it might just as well be either one these days. So I actually decided to do a little research and talk to a whole bunch of writers and editors I know in mainstream media, taking as the question, what is the effect of social media, um, not so much on the business model or on what the audience is doing, but on the practice of journalism, which I took to be our question. Um, and the answer that came back resoundingly from we're talking newspaper, former managing editor and magazines and new websites and so on is you may remember 10 years ago there was a lot of hype about social media. It was going to change the newsroom. It was going to bring the community inside. We were going to be in constant interaction with our readers. It was going to change the news agenda the way we reported. Well, no, it's been a tool and it's a useful tool, but it has not been a transformation. What people are saying um, is kind of what you expect them to say, which is really only two things matter. They're Facebook and Twitter. Reddit is kind of coming up from behind, but that's it. Comments, no one pays attention to, except you can sell ads against them as free content. Um, people are using new media, social media for traditional ends primarily. That is, they're getting leads from it. They are engaging audiences. They are promoting their stuff. They are broadcasting. It's a good way to plug into your community, but these are all things journalists have traditionally done. And no one said, this is sort of the new number one way I do my reporting. They all said, this is, you know, two or three or four on the list. It's nice to have. So um, this has all been helpful, but, but not epical. I call it the revolution that didn't happen. But there was an interesting footnote that came up in the course of talking to people which does so show, I think, some promise for some interesting changes, and that is the recent shift from search to share, mm. which people are saying is really potentially quite significant. And the reason for that is in a search world where you're looking for eyeballs and people are finding you on Google, you're going straight to the bottom of the barrel, right? If it's the cat pictures that bring in the eyeballs, you, do, you go with the cat pictures. People say now search is beginning to, I'm sorry, search is beginning to be displaced by share. Mm. Uh, at places like Atlantic, 40, 50% of traffic is now coming from share, and it's a very different way to find content, much more quality-oriented. If somebody recommends something to you, they've probably given it a considered judgment. Share allows people to move up the quality change instead of down the quality change in order to chase eyeballs, and it allows people to penetrate deeply or more deeply into personal networks. So people see that there's a lot, of, a lot of potential actually for sort of beginning to reverse the downward spiral as we move from search to share. So I'd conclude that that's, that's kind of the trend to watch. Um, and just to, to follow up on that, I mean, your point about quality and sharing is one thing I, I noticed in some research about Twitter was that if you look at the, the articles which are the most heavily shared, and perhaps this is obvious, perhaps it's a sign of where we've come from. I don't know if it's a sign of where we're going to, but that those that are most shared come from the conventional sources. It'll be from the New York Times and from the Washington Post. So in a way, that shores up the brands which are in other ways under assault from social media. Would you agree with that? Yeah, that's exactly what people are telling me, that, that share, unlike search, will reward a high-quality journalistic effort that it takes a newsroom to produce. Um, people will say, ah, I like that, I remember that, I'm going to recommend it to Julia. So they're saying what we have traditionally done now has more of a business model in the share world. It's no guarantee, but it comes as a refreshing change after 10 years of hearing the opposite.
That's so interesting, actually. And I wonder if there's a difference between the clicking and the sharing because people want to be seen to be sharing better quality stuff. Well, and your reputation's you know, on the line, right? If I recommend right, it right. to you, it needs to be good. So people read BuzzFeed, but they won't necessarily share it right. in the same way on their Twitter account. No, but I have to go to, to you now, Hal, because uh, um, John's been very clear that he does not think the revolution has occurred. What do you think, as a publisher, what has been the impact of social media on the way we report and consume news? Uh, well, you know, I think uh, John gave a really good summary, actually. Uh, I, I, I wish I could bring some controversy. Um, it's certainly, the, the revolution didn't happen the way we thought it would, and that's generally the case. What um, John's pointed out is that there's uh, much more value held in sharing an article as opposed to just reading it, and that's something that... Uh, so I'm the editor-in-chief of a big mainstream commercial um, portal which sort of summarises a lot of sites. So I'm interested in things that work, that, uh, that you can build scale audiences from. So that's my background and that's how I analyse sharing. Uh, and back in about 2010 we realised exactly that, that people, that what we were used to looking at in terms of traditional web analytics was quite different from how uh, analytics tell you uh, what people value in terms of social networks. So we started a project to investigate that. And the great thing about um, social networks is that the information generally is in the public domain. You can ask a website um, how many shares has this article had, and it could be on The Atlantic, it could be on 9 MSN, it could be anywhere, and that public API will tell you uh, how many shares that article has had. So. Um, the ShareWars project uh, was, we started in 2011, built a machine to go out and scrape all, uh, 118 sites around the world from their homepages, uh, find out how many shares those articles had had, and uh, then put all that information in a big database. What we found uh, over a three-month period is that we sort of collected 1.3 million stories, which is way too much for to kind of make any sense of unless you've um, got some serious number crunching ability, which I don't have. Um, but even just looking at that set was absolutely fascinating. I think everyone here who's interested in stories would just love to look through that. The first 200 on that list, they were, they were almost distilled essence of inability to tear yourself away from the page. So I personally lost hours and hours just looking through that, that first 200 in that three-month period. It was from Like my, what? Tell us. Uh, oh, there's a lot of... Uh, and this is the surprising thing, and this is, goes to what Jonathan was saying about value as opposed to just sheer popularity. Uh, it, it appears that people value stories that obviously matter a lot to them, and in the period we looked at, there was a, a huge amount of gay rights coverage. It was a period last year when... Um, the gay rights marriage debate was happening in the US. That was amongst uh, the, the single most shared topic in the period. Uh, there was also a lot of really blood-curdling stuff, like the um, bloke who ate the other guy on the, on the overpass. Um, we missed that one instead. Yeah, you missed that one. No, no, that was... You didn't miss that, <laughs> that one. I'm here to tell you you didn't uh. miss that one. Um, that, that received no, something like... shared it, John. Yeah. yeah. But the fascinating thing about the mix is it's not quite traditional news values, but neither is it bottom of the barrel, you know, 10 years ago, how can we get a click values? It's something entirely new, and I think that that mix and the feedback loop that you get from that amazing amount of direct traffic that you get from social networks 
is actually affecting and changing um, the mainstream content mix. But how do you, I mean, I feel like I'm asking KFC for their secret ingredients now, but yeah. how do you describe that? How do you describe those 200? If it's not the old, that, it's not the new. Okay. Like, what are the adjectives you would use to describe that appetite? It's personalised. Okay, so, so I started this project with another bloke called Andy Hunter. And Andy and I have a difference of opinion. Mm -hmm. He thinks that there is a formula, and he is like an alchemist. He is like, I'm going to find the formula. And I'm like, there, there, there can be no formula, because what you're dealing with is an arms race kind of situation, of really of novelty. So it's like, what doesn't the audience know? And, and therefore, how can, you how can you condense that into a formula? What we see are that there are themes coming through. One great theme is uh, the reverse, where you would expect a certain situation to take place and, it, and the opposite happens. Uh, for example, um, you know, a toddler smoking a cigarette. You know, that's, a, that's a really facile example. But that's a great reverse, you know, an adult behaviour in a, in a baby and it gets shared amazingly. Um, you know, there are other things, but if you, can, if you can sort of get a reverse situation, then that seems to be highly shared. The whole idea around um, what we're investigating is because that kind of thing fuels the cycle, you get 50% of your traffic from that, your editors will start looking towards that, the news mix gradually evolves. Could I, if I could just add a footnote to that, um, I would take your side in that debate based on my conversations with people. I asked the same question you do, so what are they sharing? And the answer that came back is there's no formula, or at least none that we've discovered. There's, it's kind of a mystery uh, as to what types of, of story people are sharing. Uh, it's, it's hard to track in many ways because a lot of sharing is, people call it black, meaning it's done by email and other ways that are hard to track. And it doesn't seem to be a kind of thing or a formula, but what people did say is it does seem to want to reward quality. In other words, if we put more effort in to make it good, mm -hmm. it tends to be shared more. Right. And that's a very good lesson to be And to possibly be over a longer period of time, for example, right. with your essay, that suddenly it's had like 10 years running in it. Anyway. Right, and a lot of it is share traffic, I'm yeah. sure. Right. Now, um, what do you think as a um, historian, Nicole, like how, how, do we, how do we view what's happening to participation um, of the audience like, and, and how unusual is it? I was, I was, oddly enough, reading some archives about the 1848 revolutions in Paris recently and they were describing how people were waiting to get the newspaper and there were clusters around every streetlight through the capitals, they're waiting to see what had happened with the king, you know. And, and when, I, when I read about those faces bathed in the glow of the lamp, I was like, that's Twitter now, you know, kind of a different kind of glow because they could talk about it at the same time they were reading it. But how, how do you interpret it in the vast swing of history? Right, so I would say it's actually a little different from Twitter in that <clears throat> they're standing around and talking in person, whereas when they're responding nowadays, they're responding over another form of media, right? They're responding over Twitter um, in a very public way. That conversation you're having on the street corner stays on that street corner, more or less. Um, if you put it out on Twitter, it goes out to the world. And I think that is where having a historical perspective actually really helps, because for at least the last few centuries, media or mediated communication broke down along two lines. You had um, sort of the public sphere of communication, and that was a one-way process, right? It was um, media that were produced and then presented to the public, to an audience um, who received them. Um, so these are things like 
books and magazines and newspapers and radio and television. The media product was there and audiences could respond to it how they wanted, um, but it had already been produced. Um, and then you had two-way collaborative mediated communication that tended to be private, right? So letters, telephones, email, um, and those were two sort of separate worlds that didn't mix a whole lot. What social media has the potential to do is to tear down the wall between those two worlds. And that can have some real consequences because of the values of each of those worlds um, and how they've been used and what they mean um, are different. Um, so I think that we first see this happen Oh, in the last two or three decades, and I actually think it doesn't start with the internet, but it starts with talk radio, um, or I think the Australians have a better way of talking about it, talk back radio, because it gets at the constitutive element of audience participation. You could have the Rush Limbaugh show without the audience, but it just wouldn't be the same thing, um, that the audience is producing the media along with the host. Um, and so that combination of production sort of gets its start in limited ways with talk radio, and then with the use of social media, um, in, in journalism, it at least has the potential to tear down that wall in interesting ways. Um, I think that a couple of the ways in which it's interesting is, you know, we talk about the business model in which people don't want to pay for uh, journalism they get off the internet. Um, but increasingly, with the rise of user-generated content, um, companies don't want to pay for the content that's being produced. And so you get increasingly writers who are being lower paid or not paid at all. And I think that there are real consequences to user-generated content not being monetized in some way. Um, in a capitalist society, work that isn't paid for tends to be devalued. And I think that could potentially have consequences um, for journalism. And I think it's also to talk about the way things are shared, that has consequences for journalism as well, in that it helps create what Ellie Pariser calls um, the filter bubble, right? The people who are going to see what you share are the people who are in your network of family and friends. So people are much more likely to click on a link and to read an article if it's shared by someone they know. And on the one hand, that's great. Um, it gets them engaged. On the other hand, to the extent that your family and friends share your values and share your experience, that could limit the types of things that you're exposed to. And then the algorithms of social media also are increasingly pushing you toward things that you already like. So Facebook is going to show you the friends who you interact with the most. Um, Google is going to give you results based on what you've searched for before. And that too is constraining the information that you're exposed to or the media that you're exposed to. Yeah, right. Um, but, but do you see it, I mean, resources? I mean, if you look at the, the Crimean War, 1854, the first time they had a foreign correspondent, it took them two weeks to get his letters to find out that the battle had been a disaster and they didn't have any boots and, you know, um, there were no bandages for the men. Um, but now, obviously, I mean, that couldn't happen in real time without social media, but social media has such a, you know, strong impact on all of that. So, yeah. Right, and I don't mean to suggest that it's solely a negative thing. I think that wider participation is amazing, but increasingly the amount of journalism to which people are responding is shrinking um, in the sense of paid traditional journalism. And so you have all of these people participating in new ways, but what they're responding to is shrinking at the same time. So thinking about what the implications of that imbalance is, that might just be because we're in a transition moment. Could be that um, journalism will flourish um, in new ways and traditional paid journalism will flourish in new ways and the, it'll work itself out. Um, but at the moment, it's imbalanced, and I think that's something worth attending to. 
Well, aside from the issue of paying writers, John, which I'm assuming you think is it should be something that is happening. <laughs> Don't get me started. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a whole separate conversation. But, you know, and the impact that will have, which is, I think, demonstrable. But what do you think the, the impact on, on, on journalism is now? How has it actually, has it been getting inside your brain? No, in the way you, you mean social media per se? Yes. I think I'm like everybody else. Um, I can't, I won't speak as much to change in audience behavior where I think some of these bubble issues are probably real. But if you, in my world, um, in terms of journalist behavior, when I ask myself the same question that I ask all the other people I talk to, the answer is the same. This has not fundamentally altered what I do as a journalist. It's given me an additional resource. Twitter is a handy way to ask people a question. Um, it's a good way to monitor what's hot, but there have always been ways to do that. This is just another one. Um, one thing that I think will not happen is I think if social media were going to reinvent the news business, it would have happened by now. It hasn't. It never will. You're always going to need editors and you're going to need writers who are doing some professional filtering. You're always going to need uh, an, an establishment with a significant mm -hmm. newsroom investment. Yes, but, but you, but you say that, but we have fewer of all of those things if you look at the traditional brands. Oh, sure. So well, there, are, there, are, there are less okay, editors, well, there are less layers of subjects. Yeah, well, here, let me, let me make a, a point that might be helpful in how I think of this generally, um, something I kind of you know, wanted to stand up and shout from the gallery during the earlier sessions. I, I think, at least to me, it's extremely important to remember throughout all the conversations we hear today, there is not, in my opinion, a fundamental failure of the traditional journalism model to serve the consumer. That hasn't been the problem. It's still pretty good. It could always be better. The fundamental failure of the journalism model is to serve the advertiser. The advertisers went away when the metrics began to tell them they didn't have to take out the full page ads in order to reach the people they need. They had to pay much less for those people. The business model is collapsing because the advertisers are leaving. In fact, the mainstream media have higher reader penetration, larger readerships than they ever had in the past. This is a business problem, primarily. Mm -hmm. We sit around, we journalists, you know, beating our breasts and tearing our hair out and rending our, gar our, our garments. What are we doing wrong? Mm -hmm. What we need to be doing is asking our publishers and our ad departments what, we can, what they can do better and what we can do better. It's a business side problem. Yeah. I think that's exactly right. But and a lot of the debates that you see on social media as well are, are, are actually tie into that. A lot of people are blaming the old media because, or talking about bias or talking about you know, particular stories or bents they didn't like instead of actually addressing the business model. Now, as someone who's, who's in charge of the business model to, to some extent, would you agree with that? Uh, I don't think there's anything particularly controversial in what John said. It, it, for me, my, the difference of where I'm coming from is I would say that social media is actually quite significant. Uh, that doesn't sound very controversial either, but um, it's significant primarily because it gives us an unprecedented tool to know what the audience value. And um, John mentioned that we have other ways of knowing what is valued, but I would say to date, we haven't had anything like social media, and before that, um, just traditional web analytics. With, and it's possibly here, everyone here doesn't understand exactly how much you can know about audience behaviour <laughs> with these things. That it's like a layer of software you put on your site, and it could sample every five seconds and tell you exactly what everyone is doing at any minute. That, for me, is a negative tool. 
So it's a negative tool in that it will tell you when something stinks. It will not tell you what to create, and it won't lead you in new directions. So I'm not a believer in just blindly following the analytics, but you need to be able to know how that works. Social media cuts it down into these incremental little uh, nodes. Look at what people value. Look at what Facebook is doing at the moment. It is absolutely unprecedented in human history, and that sounds totally overblown, but it isn't. They've got this 500 million people uh, experimental set that they can do network effect experiments on, and they are doing those, uh, and I think it's a wonderful thing. Um, and if you get a chance to talk to any of these, uh, the scientists that are actually doing this work, it is absolutely mind-blowing. Okay, and you're probably going to tell me this is a conventional way of viewing this, but you know, one of the greatest struggles in um, journalism making the transition to online is the clicks versus, the, not necessarily versus the quality because they can go well together, but you know, the things that, that, that really make up a brand and um, the things that, won't, that, that make you a trusted, valued news site but won't bring you the crowds. So, you know, the, the investigative reporting, the political reporting, and, you know, the, the, this, this is why many people become journalists, because they think that's the case. No, that they think that's important and they yep. want to be part of that grand tradition. So are you seeing any tangible, um, a tangible effect of, 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 that, of that, the tension between those two things? So, so what happens a lot is that uh, we get journalists uh, just beginning with us, starting out, uh, or p even other people in the organisation. And, for example, the other day we had someone bring up... Someone did a two-week... Say someone does a two-week investigation, it go the story goes live and it gets no traffic. And the question is, isn't that worth doing? Um, and my answer is, no, that's bad. And it's, and it's bad because if a story is worth putting two weeks in and it's important, there must be a way of making that story interesting. There must, there must be a way of selling that. It is not a dichotomy between, you know, worthwhile and boring and, you know, crap and popular over here. That is not the right way to think about but, it. But, you know... Popular and important is, is possible. Yeah, right. It's a, way of, it's a way of presenting it. Yeah. Like, so, the, like the introverts piece. I made a note earlier, read Jonathan's introvert piece. Okay, but no, yeah, let me... Everyone here. Yeah, yeah, sorry. <laughs> I keep talking note. about it because I was slightly obsessed with this essay. But then but let's go back to that then. Because we, uh, we were talking about this essay earlier and John, John said that, you know, it was written in 2003 mm -hmm. and for four years it didn't get any attention. Yeah, so... And then what, it took off. What I, my, uh, my mind immediately, when we were talking about that earlier, I just, like, just want to get a hold of your analytics guys and work out where the traffic came from. For, just work out how that happened. Wouldn't that be a wonderful uh, either proof of, you know, some of Malcolm Gladwell's stuff? Or was, it, was there a single influencer who got hold of that and then spread it and it just went nuts? Like, the actual journey of that article would probably tell us something pretty amazing. And it's, no doubt, it's all on the public record somewhere in, uh, not public record, the private record, uh, in the database of the Atlantic somewhere. But it's interesting because it would have gotten, gotten popular right around what, 2006, 2007? Somewhere. It took a few years, somewhere in there. So 2005, is, who knows? Yeah, so this is when social media are starting to take off. And I think that it goes to your point about the difference between searching and um, sharing, which is that when it was a search-based um, system, search engine optimization was all of the buzz. This was how people found articles. It's how you framed 
headlines, it's how you framed content. Mm -hmm. And then with the shift to social media, it became about anything that can go viral and how you tap more into emotion um, that makes things go viral. Mm -hmm. um, so the qualities of the piece might be more attuned to how people share things over social media than how they search for them in something like Google. Yeah, maybe. It's, I mean, it's, it's hard to say. Um, there is nothing new about the phenomenon of sharing. We used to, there are people here who are old enough to remember pass-along traffic in the magazine industry. You know, you'd have Jim Fallows, a gray hair, here is nodding his head. You know, we, we knew that there were 20 readers of National Journal or Atlantic for every one subscriber. People would pass it along, and, and we factored that into our advertising. So, so now we do that with share by an order of magnitude. Um, to what Hal said, you know, it's, it's interesting to look at these analytics. I did that, actually, in preparation of coming here. I sat down with a magazine person, and he showed me the dashboard and all the stuff you can get. Um, but when I talked to people about this, they said, that's all well and good, but that is no substitute for editorial judgment. Not even close. You don't know what's driving these people, and you don't know, as I found out with Caring for Your Introvert, what things are going to look like a year from now. It's just one, it's one piece of data. I did have an interesting conversation with someone who made me promise not to reveal his publication. He's the editor-in-chief of a Washington news publication who said that they are looking at ways to bring share data into the editorial decision-making in ways that they would never have considered doing with search. So that they, will, they are going to see if they can get good enough metrics and good enough understanding of what's going on to actually filter that in. They never did that with, with search. And the, re and the reason is because of the, they're seeing it as a measure of, of quality. Yeah, it's a measure of quality and also they want to be in these people's networks. This mm. is a publication um, that reaches a lot of people, advertisers and others would like to talk to. Okay. I, I think it's interesting, sorry, I, you were just about to go to a question, I'm yeah. sure, Julia, um, that you use the term quality there, which is something that I'm quite wary of. Uh, and I'm wary because it, it does vary uh, for everyone. If you use the term value, a measure of value, I think that you do hone down on something um, a, a lot better in terms of just from within the industry, what is valued by the audience um, is a mindset to go into the business with, whereas what is quality, it's kind of like it's very hoity-toity. You know, I'll tell you what's quality. Yeah, right. No, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm for that's that. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Put me down as a quality guy. Yeah. You're, you're on the hoity-toity I mean, side. Value, value is fine, but I think there, there ought to be independent standards of judgment, and they don't need to rule in every case where you spend the money and what you play, but, but it's, it, I think it is important to maintain independent standards and the notion that independent standards exist. People don't want to read about Aboriginal Australia, for example, mm -hmm. and yet the, edit the edit editors will say this is an, impor this is an important issue we will, we, we, and, and it must be covered. And this is probably because there's, you know, yeah. a bunch of white people in the room talking about it, to be honest. Yeah. So how do you resolve questions like that? I'd, I'd use the example of political reporting, which is, um, you know, any web editor will tell you that it kills the ratings. So you put up a lead story about politics and it's a real, um, you know, it's a real, it, it stinks. And I'm, talking, I'm not talking about a niche political site here, I'm talking about mainstream media, try to maximise your audience, you know, trying to reach the majority of Australians. You want to get 60% of Australians, put up a, a dry political page and you will die. Um, the, 
So that's accepted wisdom. There is nothing controversial in that statement. Mm -hmm. What the sharing data is telling us, actually, is that there are, there's a subset of political stories that is highly popular. And that, that's what's so wonderful about doing this research into value. Um, you, you find these counterintuitive things that you didn't expect. Well, I didn't expect to see gay rights up there. I didn't expect to see politics up there. Mm. I did expect to see the cannibals and the animals. But, you know, they're, they're strange bedfellows. Um, so what it tells you about politics is you definitely can make it popular. What, what does it have to be? Well, if you want to reach 60% of Australia, it, something has to have happened and it has to have impact. Mm. It can't be speculation. Yeah, right. Jonathan, what's your take on that? Well, you asked earlier for an example of a worthy story that got no clicks. I had uh, a conversation a few days ago with a, a woman named Siobhan Gorman, who was with the Wall Street Journal and was one of the reporters who's been very involved in the NSA um, data mining controversy in the United States. And she said, what's frustrating to somebody like her, who's been on this beat for years, is that there is surprisingly little that's really new in the Snowden revelation. She said, for example, the main, I think it was the PRISM program, this was reported by USA Today in 2006. No one clicked on it, no one cared. A lot of this stuff went out there, it just didn't hit, it didn't hit, it didn't hit. Do we say, therefore, that it had no value because, in fact, the country wasn't ready for it? Or do we say that, in fact, when the country was ready for it and the time was for it to hit, we had an infrastructure of journalists who knew about it, who were ready to source, who, who were already sourced, who were ready to go, and a backlog of, of material on the public record. So I would argue that's a good example of sometimes deferred gratification is, is very important. Part of what's so intriguing to me about what Hal just said and about this shift change from um, search to share is it may bring quality and value into closer alignment from the advertiser's point of view. That is, if you get more traffic of more of the right kind of people that you want to be selling to um, out of share networks than out of Google clicks, then that may mean that our business model is not quite as broken as it used to be, maybe, fingers crossed. Mm. It's question time. I was just about to go to another one, but um, terrific. All right. You don't, you don't want to hear from them, do you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. I'm a we quality have an engaged guy. audience. <laughs> Mr. Hoity Toity in the corner here. So we've got um, we've got two microphones, and if we can just remember just to make it a question and not a statement, that would be excellent. Uh, yeah, interested to hear um, Eleanor Douglas from the Perth US Asia Centre. Just is interested to hear perspectives from outside the Anglosphere. Um, so we heard this morning about Al Jazeera and India is now a country that's launching new newspapers every week, every month. Massive growth in traditional uh, journalism and media. So just from your observations from the rest of the world. Observations from enough. the rest of the world. <laughs> yeah. You don't get out enough? Mm -mm. You're here now. <laughs> <laughs> I actually think that Australians are very different on social media to uh, Americans, but that's another, that's another matter. I don't know whether you notice that from coming here and engaging. Hmm. Um, but that's because we have so many things in, in common, so many news avenues in common. What Do you want to comment on that? Well, I'm not sure how it changes, changes journalism. I mean, social media certainly does um, lead to more connectivity. It's something that um, has been given a lot of credit 
for change around the world. Obviously, the um, the role of Twitter in the Asia or the Arab Spring. Um, it's been given a lot of credit, but that has that's typically been a quite it, ha it has a quite shallow effect. Um, that is, it's very broad, but it's not very deep, and so its ability to sustain something like a revolution is quite quite small, um, which isn't quite about journalism, but social media has certainly been at the center of the debate in, um, in many, many countries outside of the Anglosphere. And it's harder for governments to shut down, which is interesting. It's pretty easy to go after, you know, the big Moscow newspaper. It's harder, it turns out, for the Chinese to go after Ai Weiwei, who's been able to tweet right through his multiple arrests and so forth. Uh, and that's interesting. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. How? Um, my knowledge in this is limited. Let, let me tell you what I can tell you about the differences in sharing between nations. So uh, when we scraped all those sites that I was telling you about, uh, we included a bunch of non-English ones. But unfortunately, we didn't have the skills on board. To, so that we have the data, but we have no idea what it's telling us. Um, <laughs> the, yeah. um, what we have been able to do is compare the US, the US with, the, with Australian media. And we've been able to see that, the, that there is a difference in the kinds of stories that do well on social media in those countries. What are they? Um, so th there's a lot. Um, there's a higher proportion of, uh, so we've got a whole categorization system. And uh, one of the big categories, the biggest category, we call norming. And we've called it that because it's interest group stuff. It's, it's, approving, it's a morally approving or disapproving of the story, apparently. Uh, and that's bigger in the US. The partisanship is bigger in the US. Um, about 75% of all the stories in the top shared stories belong to that category. In Australia, it was 60%. So it probably won't shake anyone's world to hear that, but you definitely can see a difference in flavour between those two countries. I remember sitting at my desk when I was working at Newsweek and around lunchtime, once a week, there would come in this, my Twitter feed would go crazy. I'm like, Q and A, what is that? And it would all be, and I was like, I can't believe half of Australia, okay, half of my friends were tweeting about it. But, uh, it was such an interesting phenomenon. Yes, sir? Is there an analogy or comparison between sharing where we see something we like and send it to our friends, and what an editor does in choosing a story that he or she thinks will interest the readership. <coughs> For example, I get a daily email from the monthly called the Shortlist Daily of articles that Herbert puts out together, looked around the world globally. Mm. So it does seem to be just fairly similar. Yes, absolutely. Um, the share dynamic is much more curated, uh, and it's very reputational. You know, if if you keep sharing stupid cat videos with me that are inappropriate for me, I'll stop looking at your, your emails or your, uh, what, or your likes or whatever you're doing. Um, anything my sister shares, I always read because I know it's going to be good. So we've got our reputations on the line as editors do, we are curating as editors do, we're acting as each other's editors, um, but what we're doing is editing mainline publications for each other. Well, yeah, it's, uh, I, th I think it's a great uh, almost observation, that, that question, and uh, it's absolutely the idea of sort of parallel processing, there's the mainstream here and the editor doing that, and then your parallel editing to your friends, I think, is, is a great way to describe it. Um, because Jonathan's brought, up it, brought it up twice, I would like to clear up the whole cat thing. No, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I've been wondering. So dogs are twice as popular on social media ah, as cats. Ah, the myth-making. Yeah. Wait, what's the most popular animal then? Is it the dog? The dog, yeah. Okay. 
We all learned something today. Thank you very much. Thank you. In the, in the monthly daily list, they always finish at the bottom with some unusual quirky thing which isn't really serious, but it could be great photos or it could be dogs. <laughs> the Atlantic does great photo essays. Uh, hi, this question is going to display my ignorance. Um, we, we're often told by Rupert Murdoch, among many others, that, that you know, we've been absolutely mad for the last 40 years to try to sell um, news online for free and we should put up paywalls and he's putting up paywalls and we're told that that is at least one of the answers. How do you monetize the sharing uh, if you're doing it from a behind a paywall? How do you reconcile those two things? I, I don't actually understand that. That's a very good question. I'm going to turn John. that over to the businessman in our room. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how I became the business person around here. Um, Elimination process. Yeah, right. Uh, so the answer to that one is that you don't. So um, I, I'm not a believer in paywalls for mainstream news organisations, and I think anything that creates friction is going to piss your readers off, and, and that's a problem uh, if you're trying to build a big audience. So. One, one answer is don't do it. Don't put up the paywall if you're a mainstream news organisation. Um, and the solutions are all just horrible workarounds at this point where you allow people in from social media or from search. Yeah, or mm -hmm. Which is what the journal is doing. And that's, that's a horrible workaround. That's not an answer. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's all, it's all very ugly. Yeah, I mean, there's a tension there, though. Of course, it's the same tension that you had with search, right? Which is, which is if people want to come in from the side for free and you're maximising eyeballs, you can't maximize eyeballs behind a paywall and eventually I think we're going to have to see a sorting. You know, there's something that we in media tend to, tend to forget, which is that, that what we think of as quality journalism, aka what I think I do, has always been a niche product. There was a time when we decided that, you know, we were going to be a gigantic mass market global mega media operation, but the truth is that the market for foreign news in the New York Times has always been a tiny sliver of the population. Atlantic Monthly, what, a quarter of a million on a good day? How many? Whoa, 500,000, <laughs> let's hear it. Now, 500,000 is a share of 300 million in the US population. So some of us are going to have to realize that, that our bread and butter is not reaching everybody as mass market play. It's reaching the people who really care about us and giving them enough value so that they will pay for it. So I think we may see some bifurcation in the end. Mm. And do you think there are any consequences for that, given that so much of digital journalism is link-driven? Because um, you're less likely to link to something that your um, average reader is not going to be able to access. Yeah, probably, though consequences will go both ways at once. I think I'll be more, more inclined to buy a subscription to something mm -hmm. if I start getting links to it again and again, and, uh, and people say, you really should read this. I'll probably want to know what it's all about. Mm. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's worth another quick reminder on this point about paywalls and circulate is, is to remember that um, newspapers never made their, their profits on circulation. They right. essentially gave the thing away. The 25 cents you used to pay for the Washington Post in the 80s, what, it didn't even cover the fuel in the trucks or something mm -hmm. like that. It was, the problem here is advertisers. It's the, the collapse of the advertising model, mm. uh, which may argue that in the end, if that doesn't get fixed, that even paywalls don't fix it. I'm not sure. Mm. Right. Okay, we probably have time for one more. Okay, uh, Nicholas McCallum, actually uh, one of Hal's employees at 9MSN, um, <laughs> but this is not for Hal specifically. I've got a question about uh, the digital page and how that's biased uh, certain news stories uh, compared to the analogue page in the newspaper, which was a bit more fluid. You'd fall onto stories that you were 
might not necessarily read, but they caught your eye. How can that be addressed um, rather than just relying on people sharing news, which uh, maybe, as Nicole pointed out, is just the same network sharing the same ideas and the same ideals? Uh, how can we address the, con uh, the issue of, of coming onto different stories that you might not necessarily read on a digital page, whereas in an analogue newspaper, you may have fallen on stories that may not have appealed to you necessarily? Well, I think this is where the engaged audience role sort of matters because you have to make a conscientious effort because increasingly front pages of the New York Times is going to be framed around the stories that it knows interest you, the, the driven of the driver of the most emailed or the most popular story. So there are going to be things on Facebook that will limit your sphere of exposure. So you know, something like Twitter that doesn't use a system like that, where you see everyone you subscribe to, you have to use tools like that too. But that also depends exposure. on who you're following, so. Well, you yeah, but, necessarily... but you can control who you follow, right? So you can, can, you can follow people who cover a wider range of views. But then that's up to the audience to pick people that then don't agree with. So how does, yes. a, how does a news website get people to pick up on other stories that they might not necessarily read? I don't know that they can. So the, this, the case for serendipity, yeah. yes. I mean, Sarah, that's, that's just a product design, right? Product design issue. Um, so in, in web stuff, every, when you do digital news, everyone calls the structural stuff product, and the, the stories are content. Um, the, the issue of serendipity and, and, and coming on a, uh, a story that you wouldn't have read otherwise is just a product design, just a product design issue. Um, so I don't see that as a major stumbling block. It's just a feature of a newspaper. Um, the filter bubble thing, I don't really buy into. Uh, I feel a bit weird, Nick, because we could have had this conversation in the office. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> busy at the office. Yeah. <laughs> <All right>. <laughs> <laughs> Are we ending on that note? <laughs> See you back in the office. I okay. think someone just lost their job. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> yeah, he's a new job now. Yeah, it's fantastic. <laughs> Okay, no, that's all good. All right, well, before um, we wrap this up, everyone, don't forget there's afternoon tea on outside now, and if we want to just thank our panel. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to Walkley Talks on iTunes and follow the Walkleys on Twitter and Facebook for new episode updates to be the first to know about upcoming Walkley's news and events.